0: any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And we are here today, my friends, Jorge Cham, Daniel Whiteson, uh, for their second book. Their second book is a phenomenal book. It is called frequently asked questions about the universe. And it's lovingly and tenderly illustrated. By Daniel, I believe, right? Daniel, you're the illustrator for all these. Right?
1: Uh, yeah, but I farmed it all out to Jorge.
0: <laughs> That's right. Jorge has, uh, as a core. I'm, I'm an outsourcee. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're, you're doing the job that Daniel doesn't want to do. You know, a big shot professor, right? You know, What are you going to do? Um, so, guys, I followed your meteoric rise for many years. Um, your story and legend are well known. I've, actually, you were some, I think you were my first two kind of legitimate book guests for a book release. We did a a podcast for Into the Impossible way back in 2018. And you guys were on for your first book, We Have No Idea. And then you came uh, to San Diego, and we did a live event with you, Cliff Johnson of USC. I think uh, Physics Girl uh, was there as well as yours truly. And uh, that was a a wonderful event. And, uh, and I want to thank you for returning, coming back on the show. And I've been on your show, and uh, I, I do just uh, have the utmost delight whenever a new episode of your podcast drops, uh, uh, Explain the Universe. But today we're going to talk about frequently asked questions, facts about the universe. First question, guys, your first book, we have no idea. Why should we trust you now?
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we should have set ourselves up for uh, not having a sequel. Although everyone joked with our sequel should have been called, We Have Some Ideas Now.
1: (laughs) It's a great question, though, but you should trust us because we're the ones who will admit when we don't know. We're not just here to sell you on science, we're here to admit what we know and what we don't know because for us, you know, the majesty of the unknown is what uh, drives us our curiosity and drives all of scientific discovery. So that's what it's all about. And, you know, you notice that it's frequently asked questions about the universe, not all of them contain definitive answers. That's right.
0: And I think actually the questions are almost more interesting. And people think of scientists, like the three of us, as people who have all the answers. But actually, I think it's more important, guys, maybe you guys agree or not, um, to have questions. What what do you guys say to that? Is it more important? Are questions underrated? Because everyone can have a question. Like those of us who have kids know the ultimate explanation is because I said so. Uh, But (laughs) are questions really so important? Or is that kind of a platitude we tell our readers and listeners?
1: No, I think questions are what uh, science is. You know, science is just people asking questions. I think a lot of people out there think of science as this like monolithic institution that just sort of like churns out knowledge every year, but they forget that it's a bunch of people, and science only makes progress when some person has decided, I'm going to devote my life to this topic. I want to understand how butterflies migrate it's important to me or i want to know how the universe began or i want to measure the anisotropy of the cmb uh, you know for example because everybody has to make a choice and so science moves forward because individual people ask questions questions that are important to them to know the answer to
0: and, and Jorge, you're of course scientist, uh, engineer by training, <clears throat> uh, but you also approach things in a very visual way with your, uh, uh, you know, very whimsical PhD comics uh, series that I've been a fan of for for decades. It feels like now. Um, I want to ask you: Do you answer or or ever pose questions visually? Is that is that even a concept that makes sense?
2: <laughs> um, yeah. I ask questions all the time. You know, I have a notebook. Uh, it's digital now, but you know, it's all it's where I sort of uh, outsource my my brain and where I put all my all the questions I have, and then I have fun answering them. Um, but yeah, no, I, I do think sort of visually, which is how, why uh, sometimes a podcast is challenging <laughs> to think about these things. Um, but no, yeah, it's um, it's uh, it's pretty interesting to sort of. Think about some of these abstract and or like grand ideas about the universe in, in a sort of and try to translate them into cartoon form. That's kind of the the fun challenge for me in these projects.
0: I see the evolution, uh, both of you guys individually, but also collectively as this uh, Burbaki like set that you guys comprise. Um, you guys have really evolved and and branched out. We were joking before I hit record. You guys have this multimedia empire. You've got. Audio podcast, dominating, uh, always top 10 science uh, podcast, explain the universe. You've got Eleanor Wonders Why, uh, just a marvelous uh, resource for parents and for, for anybody who's interested in, in kind of exploring big picture things, but also, yeah, this, this, this character, Eleanor. So actually, we, we didn't talk about that last time because I don't think she existed. Um, talk about the evolution, the origin of Eleanor, and then we'll get into uh, this delightful new book. So whoever wants to start.
2: Yeah, yeah, I can chime in. Eleanor wonders why. It's a kids' show that uh, airs on PBS Kids. It's for preschool to sort of like first, second grade, and it's all about inspiring curiosity in kids. You know, we talked about how science is all about asking questions, and you know, it's it's about inspiring the little scientists that every kid is born with. You know, every kid has all this curiosity about the world; they want to know how the world works, and so they have questions. And mm. and um, unfortunately, sometimes society sometimes beats that down <laughs> eventually. Uh, and so we are trying to champion the, the other part of it, which is to encourage kids to be curious, to encourage them to ask questions, and also to kind of give them some tools they can use to answer their own questions um, and so the the show, the origin of the show was um, actually kind of independent of our book and our podcast um, you know, we were sort of in the middle of doing those projects but then I, I got an email from someone at PBS saying they were looking for new ideas and so I, I wrote Daniel in and we pitched the the series and um, we based it on our kids. So Eleanor is the name of uh, the name of my daughter. And we also based some characters on Daniel's kids. And, um, and so, yeah, it's a big passion project. It's, it's an amazing project just because it reaches so many kids in not just in the U S but all over the world. And, and hopefully um, brings a little more curiosity into all of those households.
0: Mm-hmm. And Daniel, I've gotten in <clears throat> trouble lately because I've been, kind of uh, preening and saying things like, scientists who get paid by the public, like you and me, we have a moral obligation to explain what we do to the public who pay our salaries. Um, but I shouldn't speak for all scientists, should I? Uh, wh- what is your take on the obligations of a professor? As I expect when I wrote different books and did different projects, my department chair was like, oh, we won't punish you. You know, We probably won't punish you. You know, Of course, I had tenure by then, as, as you do. But... Um, do you feel an obligation to explain things or, or is it just something that you're naturally talented at and therefore you take to it? Uh, but if you didn't have that talent, maybe you wouldn't be doing it. Do you, do you feel that it's an obligation? And, and if so, how, how, do you, how do you approach that balance in your career between teaching in a university, top university in the world, and doing the outreach that you do so spectacularly well?
1: Uh, thanks, yeah. Uh, it's a lot of fun for me to do the outreach. Um, my view is that... Um, academia and science it's a big field and we have room for lots of different kinds of folks um and there's places for people to contribute in lots of ways you know there are folks who are good at outreach and there are folks who are great at teaching and there are folks who are great at research and there are folks who are great at building tools and we need all of them Um, i don't think everybody has to do every part of it and that's one of the strengths is that we can really attract people um to do their bits you know for me Specialization is like a sign of progress. I mean, I don't uh, raise my own, um, you know, I don't farm my own food. I'm not my own doctor. I outsource those bits. So I think it's fine if, uh, if some folks like to do it and other folks don't. I certainly wouldn't say that everybody needs to do outreach. Not everybody, uh, you know, enjoys it. For me, it is a pleasure, and I do feel this sense that we should make some parts of us accessible. You know, the, the, the people do pay for science, and the science is, you know, of the people, by the people, and for the people. So we do have, as an institution, not as individuals, an obligation, I think, to come and talk to people, to explain to them why we're doing it, what we're doing, and why we're doing it, why it's amazing and fun, and how they can feel a part of it. Um, I think it's important to sort of break down this barrier where people feel like scientists are inaccessible. Uh, one of the things that I do is I hold a uh, public office hours or I hang out on zoom for an hour and anybody can come and ask physics questions and it sort of grows out of, you know, office hours at the university where the students can come and they feel like they have access to you. They could ask you about your career or they can ask you physics questions or whatever. And there's this sense that like, you know, um, they can hang out with you a little bit. And so I like doing uh, public office hours because it makes people feel like, Hey, there's a resource available. I can go and ask this question or I can talk to a physicist about X, Y, or Z. And, and people show up and sometimes they ask for career advice and sometimes they ask physics questions. And uh, I think that's, that's a lot of fun. Um, the other question you ask is, is really interesting also is how do you balance this sort of career-wise because, uh, you know, as you say, it's not something that's always prized within academia. And I have students now who come to UCI partially because they're into outreach and they know that, um, that folks here do it. And I tell them that unfortunately it's not something that's going to get you a job you know, if you want to be a physics professor, uh, having a podcast is not what's going to get you that position. Uh, there's opportunity. <laughs> yeah. There's opportunities to branch out after you have tenure. Um, but you know, the institution is still a little weird. I like the way Sean Carroll says it. He says, you're allowed to have hobbies as a professor, as long as they're not science hobbies. Like nobody would criticize you if you liked riding horses on the weekends, but if you're Hobby on the weekends is doing science outreach. Then they have this sense that it somehow diminishes your focus on science itself. Uh, you and I know that's silly. Um, I actually think that working on the podcast and all these other projects fuels my love for science. It reminds me why it's fun and exciting. It taps into that basic curiosity and interest in the deep questions about the universe. It helps me broaden my knowledge as I like do reading to to prepare for, to talk about some topic on the podcast. Uh, so for me it's been a really wonderful experience and also you know getting to work with artistic and creative people like Jorge who ropes me into amazing projects I never ever would have been involved in otherwise yeah speaking of Jorge yeah,
2: but basically I, the, the answer Brian is that every professor should hire a cartoonist I think that <laughs> right. would uh, help the, both professions uh, a, a lot I think Yeah, although
0: it sounds like uh, if I recall correctly you kind of hired him you were writing some uh, stuff about the Higgs and, and you approached him and Uh, um, But, yeah, just to add to that, I always joke there's no one skill called scientist. There's no one skill called uh, cartoonist, right? There's no one skill called uh, podcaster. It's all these micro skills, and we never Mm -hmm. develop them, uh, even in our scientists, when we uh, are are paid so so dearly in uh, the state of California uh, to do so. Um, uh, so let's turn to the book. The book is Frequently Asked Questions. And I thought they, uh, that uh, Daniel was a Bayesian. That's an inside joke. Um, but, uh, but what is the most frequent of all frequent <laughs> questions? Is it asteroid, dinosaur related? Is it black hole related? Is it uh, extra dimensions and alien related? What's the most frequent of the facts of the universe?
2: Yeah, well, you know, I think the title is is sort of um, not just uh, data and statistically driven, it's also sort of spiritually driven. You know, we try to tap into questions that Mm. not only we get a lot on the podcast, through the podcast or through our, our talks and things like that, but also just questions that, you know, we thought humanity has been asking for a long time, you know, big questions like where does the universe come from or... Or, um, you know, um, why can't we go to other stars and visit other stars? Or can we somehow, is there another Earth out there? Or why haven't aliens visited us? These are the questions we cover in the book. And, and, um, yeah, we just try to focus on, Really, sort of like existential questions that make you sort of think about the nature of the universe, about your role in it, or whether your, your very existence in it. Um, and also balance, we balance that with questions we, with real questions we get from uh, listeners.:
1: Yeah. That's right. And mm-hmm. and as we say near the end of the book, maybe the most frequently asked question is the one that comes second. Like people ask us a question about some physics and then they ask us, what does it mean? Mm. You know, like, all right, so we have this theory about how the universe started. What does that mean about the universe or about my life? Or what does that tell me? And I think that's really fun because it connects to the, the bridge between physics and philosophy. You know, that physics, the things we learn about the universe from physics, can tell us things about how to live our lives and what it means. And so, f- for me, maybe the the most frequently asked question is that implicit one: It's like, what does it mean that the universe is this way and not the other way?
2: What does it mean, man? <laughs> That's yeah. That, that, that we do. Um, there is one question we covered in the book that we do seem to get a lot, and that it's one about black holes. There's a a chapter in the book about sort of like a beat by beat of what happens if if you fall into a black hole. What are you going to experience? Are you actually going to die? Can you survive going into the black hole? Um, And and so uh, for some reason, people seem to be really curious about black holes, and and (laughs) probably because we don't know what's in them. Yeah, exactly.
0: (laughs) Right. We always get uh, get uh, the questions about the things that are mysterious to everybody. I, I always like questions that start off with, you know, this is a simple question, but you know what happens if you <laughs> shrank the Planck scale by a factor of it? Uh, so let's talk about uh, black holes. I, I love this this chapter. You know, what happens if I get sucked into a black hole? And, you know, partially because it's, it's, it's familiar, but it's also kind of, you know, dastardly remote i mean nobody knows what what happens ultimately and i think a lot of the questions are answered by that and that's what's so exciting about science like you you know i always say you you never win science you know (laughs) science is not a finite game like chess it's it's there are finite games within it like uh, getting into grad school, uh, getting a tenure track position, winning the Nobel Prize—those are all you know zero-sum games or finite, so-called finite games. But science isn't, and so of course there's going to be things that we don't know. And the Archib- John Archibald Wheeler once said, you know, science is like expanding this island, the size of an island, uh, and as you do so, the ocean of ignorance gets smaller, but the boundary between them also grows. So. Uh, this question I get a lot, and actually I've asked that not necessarily to Sir Roger Penrose or Reinhard Gensel when they were on my show, but, uh, but I want to ask you guys. Uh, the fact that we don't know exactly what happens has been troubling me and many people. Uh, so le- let me ask an, uh, uh, you know, maybe um, an expert question. Because we often hear that we need a quantum theory of gravity to understand a black hole singularity, um, can we ever know without such a thing? In other words, is it really a two-part question that, we, you know, ha, uh, what is the ultimate, you know, quantization of gravity or is that even possible? And then we can ask what happens if you go inside a black hole. So e- either one of you guys.
1: I think that's a question think, for you, yeah, Jorge. Jorge. Yeah, it's <laughs> Jorge. Please take it of course, yeah.
2: But uh, I'll defer to Daniel on this one. <laughs> you know, I think I can't answer it just from having recorded 300 episodes of our podcast together. <laughs>
1: Well, it's a really fun question because it sort of goes to the balance between experimental and theoretical physics, right? Like, can you figure this stuff out before you see it? Or do you need to see it in order to understand? Mm. And the thing that's fascinating for me about the black holes is that we sort of do know what's in them. What's in them? are the secrets to quantum gravity. Like, if you could go inside a black hole and observe what's going on in there, is there a singularity? Is there some quantum fuzziness? That would tell you a lot of what you needed to know, presumably, to build a quantum theory of gravity. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so that's sort of like what we need. And the thing that's wonderful about the universe and the reason that I'm an experimentalist and not a theorist is that some of these things just have to be discovered? You can't just sit in a cave somewhere and think your way through the puzzle of the universe. You have to go out and explore because the universe is constantly confronting us mm. with things we never imagined, which take us a hundred years to come to deal to terms with, you know, mm. like, is it really that way? What? Are you sure? And then finally, you know, a hundred years later, undergrads are like, oh, of course. <laughs> you know, it, it takes a while. And so I think you have to go out and to, and to explore sometimes to discover these things. Now, of course, it's possible that somebody out there has a theory of quantum gravity or will develop one, which later we prove to be correct, but I think it's much more likely that some weird discovery we make, some something which violates uh, general relativity, maybe on the micro scale, you know, these experiments with like small um, quantumly entangled gravitationally interacting particles maybe uh, will give us a sense for the direction of quantum gravity. But I think it's the experiments that need to lead the way because I suspect the universe is weirder than even theorists can imagine.
0: Mm. And, Jorge, I actually do um, find it kind of curious to know if you were inspired in any way by a great cartoonist by the name of Sir Roger Penrose, um, who did a tremendous work. Some say he won his Nobel Prize for a single diagram in a 1964 paper on the, you know, space-time properties of black holes. Um, he, of course, draws all sorts of whimsical shapes and so forth. Um, and, and maybe that's connected to this concept of discovery that we mentioned earlier. But, um, but are there you know, places in physics that lend themselves more naturally to artistic uh, depiction?
2: Yeah. Well, it's kind of tricky because you know if, um, if we sort of know what it looks like, then it's easy to draw. But then you don't get to use your imagination as much. Whereas if we don't know what it looks like, um, then you know I'm sort of free to imagine what or interpret that or, or come up with interesting ways to depict it. Uh, but then you know it's like who knows who, who knows if I'm if I'm right or not. Um, I would say sort of the, the hardest thing I always find hard to draw is a quantum just the idea of quantum physics and things like the fuzziness of, of particles or the, you know, orbitals around uh, the nucleus of, of an atom, you know, those are things that maybe uh, a two-dimensional uh, black and white drawing are, are kind of difficult to, to really capture. Mm. But yeah, no, I, I agree. Everyone who draws cartoons is a genius for sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: and so for both of you guys in the zeitgeist, in the spirit of the times, uh, this will be out after uh, after Halloween, unfortunately, but uh, but the ghost of the times, the spirit of the times, uh, have been aliens, not just aliens, UFOs. Uh, that is covered in <clears throat> in facts about the universe. Um, what does that kind of reveal more? Is it more of a scientific question? Is it a sociological question? Is it an escapist question? You know that. Uh, David Kaiser, when he was on the show discussing his book *Quantum Legacies*, talked about you know this confluence of, of the nuclear age and the information age, and that led to you know sightings and thoughts about extraterrestrials, et cetera, et cetera. What do you make of this uh, lately, either one of you or both of you? Um, and this this notion that you know we are being visited potentially by an extraterrestrial uh, intelligence of some kind, and there are events that we can't explain. And I guess the question is, where does the boundary of like saying, "Well, we have no idea, you know <laughs> we leave off and say, "Well, there are some ideas that actually we have some idea, but not not a great idea. So maybe Daniel first, uh, what do you make of this first of all, this popularity of the notion of UFOs in the public, and then um, maybe uh, Jorge, what do you do with this? Like do, you, do you, how do you address it in a way that's respectful but also takes it seriously <laughs>
1: Yeah. It's a lot of fun. And I'm always saying on the podcast, I'm looking forward to the alien invasion because in that brief moment before they eat us or zap us, maybe they'll share with us their theory of quantum gravity. And, you know, that'll make it all worth it. Um <laughs> And so I read these reports uh, with enthusiasm. I'm like, ooh, yay, maybe the aliens have come. I mean, I think people on the podcast hear me being skeptical. But I'm skeptical, but I'm also optimistic. You know, I'm open-minded. I definitely want this to happen. I'm a, I am ai want to believe. Um, but it's hard to look at, frankly, any of these events, these Navy pilot reports or the videos, and take much away from them that's sort of concrete. If you put your skeptics hat on. Uh, we actually had... Mick West on our podcast and we went through a lot of these videos sort of frame by frame and broke them down and a lot of them frankly have prosaic explanations you know you can understand why this looks this way because of lens flare or this one is you know sort of a forced perspective or and you know none of this is conclusive but if there are simple explanations for these things um, then it's hard to come away with conclusion that there's something going on we don't understand um unfortunately you know and uh, a a bunch of people wrote in after that episode and was like how could you have somebody like mick west on your program he's (laughs) anti-alien you know and uh, i don't think he's anti-alien i think he's just he's looking for a for an explanation that's reasonable and it's and that's what we have to do uh, before we conclude that something is extraterrestrial or alien then we have to um You know, we have to dismiss all other possibilities. We have to assess them at least. Mm -hmm. And I think that this question about aliens really breaks into two. One is like people seeing weird stuff out their windows or things you can't explain, these sort of UFO phenomena. But I think there's a a much more serious and exciting um, understanding in the last 20 or 30 years that the universe is filled with habitable planets. And that makes the prospect that there really are extraterrestrials out there, maybe not here on Earth, but out there in the universe. Much more scientifically responsible to imagine, and so I think that maybe drives it. You know, maybe there's a coupling between like the legitimate scientific exploration of the question of extraterrestrial intelligence out there, and people's excitement for things they see. Uh, you know, the weird videos and mm-hmm. the things they see out their windows. Hmm.
0: Yeah, and using it as a as an opportunity to explain legitimate, as you say, scientific questions, and uh, I agree. I had on um, Mick as well, and I actually had on people from the Jasons, the super secret society, and um, they're all like, "Yeah, hell, this would be great. I'd love to, you know, learn, uh, you know, to win the next eighty Nobel prizes in a row or something." <laughs> uh, but uh, but yeah. In the same token, we have to be careful and think about well. Is this really data? Who does it belong to? You know, what are eyewitness accounts? You know, how are they reliable? If we all had a courtroom sketch artist like Jorge around at all times, of course, everything would be documented perfectly. Um, another thing that, you know, maybe ties into that is this notion of another earth. And this had some really lovely uh, ideas and, and, and depictions. And, and Jorge, was there a chapter that was the most fun for you to, to kind of illustrate and contribute to, or are they all like your children? Children, uh, singular.
2: Uh, that they're all yeah. your favorite. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't have as many kids as you have, Brian, but uh, I, I do love uh, all of my drawings. <laughs> they're all special, in their own special way. Yes. Um, no, they're all good. They're all fun to draw. I mean, that one about another Earth was particularly fun, just because we had a lot of fun, kind of. Thinking about this question, like, is there another planet we could live in in, a, in somewhere else? And what would that mean? What would they look like? And so, there's there's a lot of fun cartoons about like uh, a rocky planet and sort of dressed like a rock star, or you know, sort of thinking of of. of um, of, um, another planet as like a home remodeling project and what that would take and, and whether, it, or like, sort of like a going home shopping and, and, um, <clears throat> what sort of things would you want to look for when shopping for a new home for your species or your, your <laughs> entire civilization? Um, so that one, yeah, that one was fun to drop
1: And um, maybe I could just step in and uh, sing Jorge's praises for a moment here because, you know, one of the reasons, that this book contains cartoons is that some things are difficult to describe with words. You really need something visual. And often when we, when I was writing first drafts of this, I would think, Hmm, well, this is tricky. Uh, I'm sure Jorge can sort this out with a nice cartoon. <laughs> and then it comes back to me with this amazing depiction that really like crystallizes the ideas and shows you how things connect or, you know, pokes fun at, at something at the heart of it. Uh, so I really love all the, all the drawings that he put in there because it really, it, not just there for comic relief and to break up the pages, they really contribute to the essential science communication and making it um, understandable.
0: And dovetailing from there into, uh, briefly into Eleanor Wonders Why for a second, how do you come up with topics or are they handed to you by the network bigwigs, <laughs> you know, you, you have to cover, you know, the simulation hypothesis, which we'll get to in a bit, uh, you know, whatever. Uh, how do you come up with ideas for, for the series?
2: For the TV yeah, show? You mean? We, yeah. Uh, our network overlords are PBS, so they, they don't wear big wigs. <laughs> They're very humble people and very nice. They wear medium sized wigs. <laughs>
1: Well, for that show, we really started from what we thought, questions kids might ask. Mm-hmm. You know, because there's lots of things adults like to talk about science, they get excited about XYZ. Yeah. But we really wanted to make sure that every episode was answering a kid's question. And you know, Jorge has kids, and the, and the show is named after his daughter who asks lots of questions. And you have kids, and I have kids, and we spend time around kids, so we know the kids come at these things with a different set of preconceptions, and they ask questions which are amazing or interesting. And so we sort of put on our three-year-old goggles and just, just walked around the neighborhood or the world and looked at it and said like, what questions would kids ask? Mm. And uh, so every episode um, starts with a real question we think a kid can ask. And sometimes questions our kids asked us or, you know, a neighbor kid asked me one day and I was like, Ooh, that's a good one. Um, You know, why do spider webs have holes in them? For example, you know, uh, stuff like this.
2: Yeah, very good. Yeah, and, you know, sort of what we can do, Daniel and I uh, sort of uh, lasted us for about 40 episodes, but we still had needed 40 more. <laughs> and so we were thankful to have just a great team of writers. You know, these shows have, like, a writing stat, uh, writing mm-hmm. team. And, um, you know, we try to tap people who were not normal um, writers and people who were, you know, lifetime children's writers. And everyone came in with uh, just really great and, and fun ideas about just again, like what 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 does the world look like to little kids, and how can we kind of uh, inspire them to to um, explore? Mm-hmm.
0: Another topic that's kind of again in the in the public mind is the so called simulation hypothesis. I love that chapter in the book. Are we in a, living in a simulation? It's you know some of these are just not. Falsifiable. So, how do you approach a subject like that? Um, you know, maybe Daniel first. Uh, what, what is the simulation hypothesis for those that might not be familiar? And then, you know, Jorge, how could you even depict? such a thing in the way that you did, or what inspired you uh, to, to uh, provide this kind of really uh, fleshing out, the, as we would say, the complete vector space of, of all these different possibilities, of something that's admittedly both extremely complex to even describe, but also to, uh, to be verified or you know to approach using the finite tools of the scientific method. So, so Daniel, what is a simulation hypothesis? And, and then Jorge, how, how did you choose to approach it?
1: simulation hypothesis is something people are probably familiar with by now it's this idea that perhaps our lives are not real the universe is not physical that we live inside a simulation in a computer in some other sort of like super meta universe Mm. Uh, and you know it's not unusual or weird to think about writing a simulation in a computer we do it all the time in science we say what would happen if these two galaxies collided and we write a little computer program that simulates it to give us the answer (laughs) and so you might imagine that uh, if you had a simulation that was complex enough that it could have, like, you know, um, life emerge inside of it, an intelligent life that those beings that lived inside that simulation in your computer might not be aware of the fact that they're inside a simulation. How would they know? And so that, you know, you flip that around and you say, well, maybe our universe is a simulation from some very incredible high-performance computer in some other universe. And you're right that it's not necessarily something we can verify, though. In the book, we talk about, you know, ways you might be able to figure out you're in a simulation looking for bugs or computational limitations, et cetera. Um, But, you know, science isn't limited to things we can necessarily falsify. There's lots of theories of of science and how it can proceed. Um, A lot of folks focus on things that are experimentally falsifiable. um, But, you know, it's also possible, possible to make arguments like if you could come up with a theory of the universe that was the only one that's consistent with our data and it has implications for things that you cannot measure then you could could conclude that those things are probably real. Mm. Um, So I don't think that you necessarily need to be able to experimentally interact with things in order to have a strong argument that they're real. Though of course, as an experimentalist, I always want to have the hard truth, the data. I want to go see it or touch it or send a probe out there. Uh, So it'd be pretty cool to get to interact with the masters of the universe if we do live (laughs) in a simulation.
0: And Of course, you know, I think today uh, Mark Zuckerberg announced the metaverse or something like that. Uh, Jorge, how do you approach, you know, depicting things that, you know, may or may not, it may or may not be legitimate to demand that they're falsifiable or not. But, but yet that's a common refrain, um, you know, all the more so when it could be you who's being simulated uh, drawing the simulation. <laughs> and so we could get really meta uh, on this and ask, you know, who's simulating the simulators? Uh, is that the Coast no. Guard's job? Yeah, who does that? But anyway, uh, Jorge. Well, how do you depict something which, for which we have zero evidence, <laughs> at least at present?
2: Yeah, yeah. Maybe we're all NPCs, you know, non-physics <laughs> characters, really. Um, nice. no, yeah, this was my f- favorite kind of question to tackle in the book just because it is so wild and so pot- potentially unfalsifiable and so kind of out there to, to draw. And, um, you know, I think our general approach was To tackle these kinds of questions in a way that not just kind of gets an answer, but also kind of demonstrate a little bit how physics and scientists and engineers would sort of tackle these big questions. You know, we ask the question also in the book: Is an afterlife possible? And usually, that's you know sort of a a ticking time bomb in in science and and religion and things like that. But you know, we try to show kind of like, well, how, how would a scientist approach this? Like, let's break it down, like well, what exactly do you mean by simulation and how would that even, what would that mean? And how would that, what are some of the different ways that that could happen and what are some of what would be some of the implications for that? And, and, um, and, um, and like, um, and like, uh, you know, what are some of the ways in which you could maybe potentially demonstrate whether or not that's true or not. Mm. And, um, and so, yeah, I had a lot of fun drawing a uh, little brains and bats, I think that's the go-to. A uh, little brain hooked up to a PlayStation 4 is sort of the go-to um, depiction of a the simulated world.
0: And then there are, you know, in contradistinction to those, or contrast to those, there are, book, there are chapters in this uh, delightful book, Frequently Asked Questions About the Universe, of course, it could have been the multiverse. You talk about other universes. So I think you show a pro-universe bias that I find. Not only I, but Andre Linde has made a claim that you should not be prejudiced to think of it as a universe. First, you should think of it as a multiverse. So anyway, next book idea um, title.
2: Actually, actually, that was a dinner time question my daughter Eleanor asked me one day out of the blue. I mean, I think she was like six or seven. And she's like, how can there be multiple universes? Wouldn't they all just be the universe? Yeah. And I was like... You got, you got, you got all physics that's right. There. When we were kids, that's all there Not was. Bad right? naming conventions. That's the problem.
0: But that actually, brings up something interesting. That you know, when I when I was reading this book, like the caliber of the question. Some of them are for kid, you know, kid level. You know, there's one that you know, When will the sun burn out? Okay, that has a very you know specific scientific uh, rationale that we can approach and answer definitively. Unlike you know, well, we have no idea. You know, see our first book, buy our first book. Uh, <laughs> no, you guys don't do that as I would shamelessly do. But um, but you know some of the questions that are asked, at least by you know and Eleanor and another um, uh, work that you guys do, uh, it is a lot higher than what we would have asked, right? And you know as as kids, just like thirty years ago, forty years ago, um, we're all approximately to a physicist the same age. Uh, I'm probably the <laughs> oldest one, but uh, but anyway, the looking back at you know the cal like when I was a kid, I wouldn't ask, you know, what about the multiverse or the simulation I bought? Uh, And now our kids are asking such questions, um, you know, and the the appropriate response is, you know, go to bed or do your homework. Uh, (laughs) But do you think that like science is inevitably going to lead to smarter and smarter children? You know, if the matrix doesn't, you know, isn't caused by a future advanced civilization, it could be a civilization that's currently living among us, namely our kids. So the caliber of questions of our kids are really Really getting much more sophisticated, wouldn't you say?
1: Absolutely. But and I think that's progress. You know, I think things that were cutting edge, controversial ideas a hundred years ago, now we can teach them to five year olds. Yeah. And I think that's wonderful. Um, I know that for example, if I was able to get into a time machine and go to the year three thousand, I wouldn't go to a physics conference because there's no way I'd figure it out. I'd go to like the children's section of the library and I'd start reading astronomy books and cosmology books for five-year-olds, because that'd be the only thing I'd ever have a chance to even understand. Mm. Um, and so I think that just shows the sort of, you know, slow rolling nature of scientific progress, that uh, the basic ideas, that our basic view of the universe has changed. And so now what we teach to children, and therefore the questions they ask, are also changing. I think that's pretty awesome. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and so the last topic, before we turn, I want to uh, spend some time talking about your podcast and and um getting some ideas that i can poach to grow my podcast from you guys uh but uh, is this notion of why i was always taught that why is not a scientific question you know why is there this it's some teleological method you know motivation of intent which you can't ascribe to the blind pitiless indifference of the universe's uh, inexorable evolution what do you guys say the last chapter talks about why you know is is a why question I don't, I don't like to give away the book and you know i want people to buy every single version of this book uh, possible so our why questions are they not taboo guys and and why do you end with a why if i can ask a double double why
2: yeah well we're all our, our kids just call eleanor wonders why and so if, if that's <laughs> that's not allowed then we're, we're in trouble <laughs> But yeah, you know, I, I know that, that there's been sort of a traditional line between philosophy and physics, but um, you know, I never saw a why question as as being particularly taboo. You know, you can ask like, "Why is the sky blue?" and that definitely has an answer. Um, you know, you can right. definitely give a physical answer to that, right? Mm-hmm.
0: Sure. Yeah, and, and sometimes we confuse you know why with how or what. Um, I do remember a saying of Einstein <clears throat> where he attributed his curiosity later on in life uh, to the fact that he never asked certain questions as a kid. In fact, he he credited the sophistication uh, with which he approached questions as a 25-year-old patent clerk uh, to the fact that he never asked these questions. Like he, ma- he made explicit mention that I never asked my dad what happened if I traveled uh, alongside a light beam and looked at myself <laughs> in the mirror, you know, or, you know, try to send a TikTok, you know, but, but, you know, he said, cause if I did, you know, my dad would have given me the best answer of the time, which was wrong because he had to wait until he himself came about. Um, so I, you know, I think that, that, um, you know, as much as we do want to, you know, kind of inculcate this notion of curiosity amongst kids, et cetera, we also have to, you know, recognize that sometimes the sophistication of the answer can't be really appreciated until one is much, much more developed. And it's not a knock; it's just that's just you know, it's like you can't paint a masterpiece, you know, straight out of kindergarten. Um, so finding that balance, I think, is is sort of crucial. And, and maybe this dovetails a little bit into into the podcast uh, because you you kind of blend a, a, a melange of, of styles, and you know, sometimes you have guests, sometimes too, you guys are riffing, and and um, how do you approach it how do you approach different topics is it is it just you know what people you know send in or is it stuff that you're really curious about or guests like mcwest you've talked about or you know your your most uh, you know impressive guest to date yours truly uh but, but tell me what what is your strategy there is it is it one of like i'm interested in this let's find it out or is it like how, how do you balance appealing to the, what the audience wants versus what you guys want
1: Uh, Yeah, great question. Uh, First, let me chime in on the previous one about physics and philosophy. Um, I think that you're right that often physics tries to stay separate from philosophy, that a lot of physicists um, eschew, you know, talking about philosophy. Um, I think that's silly. I think that there's not a crisp and clear line between the two. I think that a lot of the questions we ask in physics have philosophical motivations, and the, the answers we get from physics have philosophical consequences. And even the people who say, like, you know, philosophy is a waste of time, they don't realize you know, that's a philosophical position. Uh, they're, in effect, doing philosophy without even, you know, really thinking about it carefully. So mm. I would say that why questions are vital, that why questions fuel the how questions and how answers inform the why questions. So I think it's it's all a wonderful mixture. Um, here at UCI, we have a lot of folks who do really interesting um, philosophy of science, and I'm often over at the, their seminars asking uh, naive physicist questions. Um, but to your point about the podcast, um, I think that we do all of that. We sometimes do questions that, where I think this is something that will blow people's minds and is not widely appreciated, or I haven't seen talked about in an accessible way before. That I think people will find really, really cool. You know, for example, we recently had an episode on the WIMP miracle, and a lot of people are interested in dark matter. But there's not a lot of like accessible discussion out there for why science coalesced around this idea of dark matter as a particle. And in large part, it was because of this WIMP miracle, this you know um, suggestion that maybe dark matter was this weakly interacting massive particle. And so we we talk about that and uh, a lot of questions, a lot of topics come from listeners. They write to us and they ask us, Hey, can you explain this? Or they say, I need a Daniel and Jorge treatment of this. They send me an article. They're like, I didn't get it. What's going on? Can you break this down? Hmm. Um, And so we have a big mixture of stuff, whatever people find fun. And and we explore different topics. Sometimes we interview science fiction authors about the universes they build in their books and the physics of it, uh, which I think is a lot of fun also.
2: And Daniel, you also um, take questions from listeners, right? People send in questions, and sometimes we not just devote episodes to answering questions, but also they, they inspire topics to cover, right? yeah
1: absolutely yeah uh, people can write to us with any question to questions at uh, we actually answer every single email usually within a day or so and the, some of the really good questions yeah we talk about them on the podcast a whole episode uh, can be devoted to that or sometimes people send in an audio of themselves asking questions and we have a whole episode just answering listener questions uh, which is really fun and, and I'm, you know, try really hard to engage with the audience and make them feel like they're a part of this process. It's like a conversation, not just a one directional podcast mm. from us to them.
0: And maybe Daniel, to, to wrap up, I want to get your impression of there's been a lot of uh, recent particle physics results. And you are, of course, uh, one of the preeminent experimental particle physicists in the world and um, doing yeoman's work from everything from working on uh, LHC work uh, to uh, to your crayfish IO, which I'd love to hear about again uh, in person next time you come and give a colloquium here. Um, been a lot of results. G minus two. There's been the LHCB results, actually a couple of them. Just yesterday we're recording this on the 29th. Uh, 28th of October, and just yesterday there were results from MicroBoon um, claiming, on one hand, you know, consistency with the standard model, on the other hand, a whole new chapter of physics has been opened up, and, um, <laughs> are, you know, what, <laughs> what's going on here? Are, are there really, you know, fifth forces and physics beyond the standard model, or is that just what, you know, big particle physics has to do in order to get its <laughs> bread buttered?
2: Be honest. All right, are are we seeing are we seeing a fight here? Am I seeing the beginning of a fight here between
0: a (laughs) yeah? Because cosmologists never hype our results. Yeah, Uh, uh, cosmologists. Let me me get some
2: popcorn. Hold on.
1: Yeah. Um, No, you're about to see a fight, but it's between two personalities I have inside my own head. There's the optimist (laughs) and there's the pessimist. You know, or or the cynic. The optimist says, we know there's physics beyond the standard model. There's dark matter, there's neutrinos, there's all sorts of stuff that we just cannot describe with the standard model. We know it's not everything. Uh, on the other hand, the cynic says, I don't really think that anything we've seen is very exciting or persuasive. I really am kind of a cynic when it comes to these discoveries because they tend to come and go. And people get really excited about them and then they fade away mm-hmm. Um often you know and so you know let's talk about the individual ones you talked about um, the lhcb measurement and this is a measurement of you know whether particles talk to electrons and muons at the same level muons are like the heavy cousins of electrons and we think it's important in our theory that these particles interact with electrons and muons and also taus at the same level and lhcb sees this evidence that maybe they don't But if you add up all the numbers, they see some hints, but it's not really very conclusive. It's like it's a tantalizing hint because we want to find something and we look in lots and lots of places. So if you do that, then eventually you're going to find something weird. It's like if you set a thousand monkeys to flip a coin a hundred times, some of them are going to give you weird results, you Mm -hmm. know, pretty far from the distribution of 50-50. And so that's sort of the situation. We're desperate to find something new and we're hunting for tantalizing new effects. Uh, the muon g-2 is also interesting um, because you know what they saw there doesn't agree with the theoretical prediction but the theoretical prediction also doesn't agree with other theoretical predictions and so it's hard to really be terribly excited about that and the microboon one is sort of the most head-scratching but um, my version of the story is maybe the least exciting you know that came out of an experiment called lsnd Decades ago, that had a result that nobody understood. And frankly, a lot of people were skeptical of. They thought maybe they didn't understand something. And then they did a follow up experiment to try to understand it called Mini Boon. And Mini Boon saw something else weird that they didn't understand that wasn't consistent with LSMD. And I remember thinking at the time, well, it's the same folks maybe you know maybe we they don't understand the backgrounds they expect in that experiment mm. and now micro boone has come out and basically said no to the favorite theory that could describe lsnd and mini boon and to me that just says well the most likely explanation is that those experimentalists you know got it wrong they didn't understand their backgrounds as well as they thought they did not that there's some new chapter of physics so mm. i'm really kind of a cynic when it comes to you know Declaring that one of these one of these discoveries is really heralding some new physics, Uh, I really got to see a lot more data before I get excited about it.
0: I think I think that harkens back maybe even to your first book. We have no idea. Uh, Sometimes you get you know spend millions of dollars and decades of your life, and you get what's called a null result, and you get something that's just not you know inconsistent with what came before. And those are important. They don't usually happen to make the front page of the. Uh, OC Register, the Pasadena Star News, these are all you know, like a rock concert. Now I oh, always said my city's name now, uh, or the San Diego <laughs> Union Tribune. I sh- I can't I can't neglect the paper of record. Um, but you know, this is this is in, it's always interesting to have this rubric, and I think you guys do it oh so well. What we can understand, what we can't, um, you know, what we can potentially not understand, and everything in between, and giving people permission to ask these questions and uh, to have legitimate, um, serious answers, and I think that is very commendable. Um, and I want to give uh, give maybe just the last word to Jorge. What is going on with Ph.D. Comics? Sometimes I see it's, 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 it's like regular, it's coming out, sometimes, oh, there's a new comic. I just saw, I retweeted one, I was like, this is like ripped from today's headlines, and it's from 2010. <laughs> What's going on with Ph.D. Comics?
2: Yeah, a great question. Um, I don't know, is <laughs> quite the answer. Uh, you know, I did it for like 20, 20 15 years, and and, uh, and then all these amazing other fun projects came in, you know, making movies based on the comics, um, starting a, a YouTube animation um, collaborative, and then the, the book with Daniel, and the podcast, and the TV show, and... And so, um, you know, thank you to all my fans for being patient. But but, you know, these days I sort of just kind of when I find the time is sort of, or when I feel inspired, and and, uh, is when I'll post a new one. Or um, you know, even like posting old comics is sort of a lot of work. (laughs) And so, you know, sometimes I get inspired and really want to connect with people, and so I'll 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 start posting again. But. yeah yeah there's just too much fun work to do that's right
0: too too short the life as your encomium blair brighter uh, carlo ravelli always says nah, the life is just too short but you guys are making a huge dent in the multiverse with this latest contribution to the scientific oeuvre frequently asked questions about the universe or cham, daniel Whiteson. Uh, so my original two guests. Um, actually, last time you were together, and I had to like virtually pull you apart. You, know, you guys were just that. No, but it's, it's, it's <laughs> you guys have such a great chemistry. Um, uh, it's 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 always a delight when when a book comes out. But it's it's a, it's a delight when every one of your podcast episodes and Eleanor uh, asks why wonders why. Um, you guys keep doing what you're doing it's so vital it's so uh, commendable and i just want to congratulate you guys Um, you guys are the real deal you set the standard for other podcasters and science communicators to aspire to so i want to thank you guys so much and wish you the greatest of success with this wonderful book and promise me you'll come back uh, on the podcast again and again um, if only to just discuss the latest weather because it's always a fascinating time to be with you guys
2: yeah. Well, why is, why is it hot? Or is that not a question we're supposed to ask? <laughs> Southern <laughs>
0: California, it's uh, not atypical. Thank you guys. And best of luck with this wonderful new book.
1: Yeah. Thank you, thank
2: Brian. you Brian. All those things, same to you. <laughs> Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic.
1: Please support the show by rating, commenting, sharing, and leaving reviews. We appreciate hearing from you, and it really helps keep our universe expanding. Watch our YouTube channel at Dr. Brian Keating. That's D-R, Brian Keating. And join our premieres Tuesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific time. Follow Brian on Twitter and Medium, and support us on Patreon at Dr. Brian Keating. For exclusive content, visit Brian Keating's website and sign up for his informative newsletter at briankeating.com. Into the Impossible is produced with the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination in the Division of Physical Sciences at the University of California, San Diego. Produced by Stuart Valko and Brian Keating.